In a visit described as historic by people who overuse the word historic, historic President Barack Historic Obama visited Hiroshima last week to deliver a speech many in the mainstream media described as historic. Hiroshima, as every college student today knows, is where America did some kind of bad thing to non-white people for some reason, probably having to do with racism. Although tens of thousands of people died in that horrific event, many of the people who attended Obama's speech seemed to still be alive, though by the end of the speech it was difficult to tell. As a public service, I will now read you the text of that historic speech in full. Quote, Ladies and gentlemen and other fellow citizens of the galaxy, when I first decided to make history by historically coming to this historic place, I thought long and hard about what I was going to say. Should I apologize for America's victory in World War II in the hopes of making conservatives so angry they would say stupid things that would help Hillary Clinton get elected? Or should I babble out meaningless moralistic solemnities that would make me sound superior to ordinary people without actually contributing anything to our understanding of either history or the real problems facing mankind? It was a difficult decision. On the one hand, apologizing for the heroic triumphs of my betters would be consistent with my policy of trying to lose every war America won in the 20th century. I've already thrown away George W. Bush's victory in Iraq by turning the Middle East over to ISIS, reversed Ronald Reagan's triumph over the Soviet Union by sucking up to Vladimir Putin, and I've reignited the Chinese expansionism Richard Nixon put to rest in Vietnam. So I thought to myself, why not complete my work by coming here and surrendering to the Japanese? Then maybe I could fly on over to Germany and give them back the Sudetenland. But then it occurred to me that if I could stand here and blather about moral evolution or some empty crap like that, it might make the girls at the Los Angeles Times giggle in that special way I like. Or maybe they're not girls. It's, it's hard to tell with the LA Times. But the point is, if there's one thing I pride myself on, it's striking meaningless virtuous poses that distract a willing media from the spreading war, increasing debt, skyrocketing crime, and racial division caused by my ideological rigidity and operational incompetence. And isn't that why we're standing here today? In the end, however, I thought to myself, well, I don't have to run for office again, so maybe I should just say what I really think, which is, ha, 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 we sure vaporized you sneaky little Japs. I guess you'll think twice the next time you try to pull a Pearl Harbor on us, Obama out, unquote. I think we can all agree that it was indeed an historic occasion. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I think, I think Obama's just losing it now, you know? <laughs> he doesn't have to run. He's just going to say anything. We got you, yellow peril, you know? <laughs> like, I don't know. These, it's just wishful thinking. All right, we have a short week. The, the long, clavenless weekend is over. That We now have a short, clavenful week. So it's, you know, so subscribe immediately because our mailbag is tomorrow. You don't have that much time. You subscribe. You get to watch. It's free for 30 days. And then it's $8 or a pound of flesh every month, I think. It's something like that. Anyway. All right. So how was the weekend? Good? Yes, man? Yeah. I, I'm embarrassed to tell you what I did over the weekend. I, I never do this. I never buy video games new because I'm a, a grown-up man. <laughs> I don't have to go and spend 60. You know, I can wait a couple of months. And buy, but I, have, I got Uncharted 4. Have you played the Uncharted? Yeah, good, very, very cool. Very great story. An actual good story. I mean, very rare that you sit with a video game going like, hey, that's, that's a good idea, you know? So, and then, of course, I watched Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones is now indistinguishable from the American election. It's like a dragon lady leading a horde of slavish savages versus the slavering armies of the undead. You know, if they had, if they had a Viagra commercial, you'd think you were watching Fox News, you know. <laughs> 
all right, so we're going to, you know, wait a minute. Speaking of Viagra commercials, this is, maybe I can feel myself getting into trouble here, but I'll let me see if I can do this. Have you noticed this? They, these Viagra commercials used to be, they used to be kind of wholesome. You know, they'd be like kind of an older, middle-aged, older, middle-aged couple who obviously been married. They're decorating the house, and suddenly they felt romantic, and maybe, you know, the guy's getting a little older. Just take the blue pill. Everything will be great. You know, keep your marriage alive. And suddenly, they've got these hookers, <laughs> and, and she's in a, a treehouse. I don't know what... I, I don't even know what the, it's like some kind of Freudian symbolism, you know, take Viagra and you can go into the treehouse with a hooker. You know? like, well, I don't even know. I don't even know. I guess there's a the serious point here that I'm trying before I go down this road. I can just feel myself going off a cliff here. Should never ad lib. But the thing is, the, it is it does show you the kind of pernicious relationship between capitalism and drug companies. There is this thing that I've noticed with like, depression, antidepressive medicine, right? They start out and they say, do you have a chemical imbalance? You know, if you have a chemical imbalance that's been bothering you your whole life, you go into these horrible depressions for absolutely no reason, take this pill and then that chemical, and you go, yeah, that's that's good. I'm glad you have it. Then when that customer base dries up, they have to move on to the next customer base. It's like, has your wife left you? <laughs> you know, take your pill, it'll cheer you up, and you can go up in the treehouse with the hooker. <laughs> All right, let's let's leave this behind. We're going to leave that entire subject behind. I don't even know. Speaking of Game of Thrones and the armies of the dead, Bill Crystal has now uh, said that he has tweeted out that there's going to be a great third-party candidate coming, uh, an impressive third-party candidate, which is just, just like another Bill Crystal disaster. My relationship to Bill Crystal now, in my imagination, is the relationship that Mo had to Curly on the Three Stooges things. Like every time he opens his mouth, I just want to go, oh, Bill, a, th a third party candidate. And then grab his nose and twist it, you know, like hit him on the head. Because <laughs> we here, we here at the Andrew Clavin Show, we support our own third can party candidate who we've been touting. So here's his latest message Good evening. I am Lord Darthus. Candidate for president. Now, recently, my opponents have questioned my citizenship. So let me deal with this right now. I was born in the United States, in Ohio, in fact, in 1876. And nowhere does the Constitution prohibit a presidential candidate from being someone who has died and then been reborn as a creature of the night, feasting on the blood of the living. So there's clearly no constitutional bar to my presidential candidacy. I'm Lord Arthur. Not only there's no there's no constitutional bar, I think it's now a constitutional requirement. You have to yeah. come back and feast on the blood of the living. All right. Let me I want to talk about this Hiroshima thing. I know we missed it out because it was I think it was last Thursday or Friday, so we missed out talking about it. I want to talk about it a little bit just because of what it means. He goes to Hiroshima and he makes this absolutely empty speech. And Shapiro went off on it. He said, it was. I just thought it was like sophomoric and meaningless. And it was all about like, you know, moral evolution, things that, you know, what, what, he's the president of the United States, like, you know, run the country, you know, try and try and do something worthwhile. Instead, he's talking just empty. Th and of course, the press 
goes nuts. The LA Times, here, let, listen to this is the lead in the LA Times news story, okay? In a sweeping address that reflected on the obligations of humankind, Obama wrestled with the inherent contradiction that centuries of technical advancement have both made it easier to bind people together and given them, given them the capacity for the carnage seen in this city. And he spoke to the cold reality of his own goal of a world without nuclear firepower and how it remains frustrating. I mean, Let's listen just a bit of a bit of Obama's speech. We may not be able to eliminate man's capacity to do evil. So nations and the alliances that we formed must possess the means to defend ourselves. But among those nations like my own that hold nuclear stockpiles, we must have the courage to escape the logic of fear and pursue a world without them. We may not realize this goal in my lifetime, but persistent effort can roll back the possibility of catastrophe. We can chart a course that leads to the destruction of these stockpiles. We can stop the spread to new nations and secure deadly materials from fanatics. Okay, okay so... Take a look at this graph behind me. This graph shows the number of people who have died in wars, right? And that high point is 1946 leading up to, I think it ends at 2006, all right? So the last 60 years. It's dropped from a huge number of people per 100,000 to almost none. And it's, it little, there's been a little bump because of the wars in the Middle East. But basically, you know, people, their deaths from wars have really sharply gone down. And why do you think that is? Because of nuclear weapons. As long as nuclear weapons remained in the hands of nation states, responsible nation states, they they kept people from going to war because you did not want to start a firefight, you know, that and so what he what Obama's talking about is going back to a world in which like, you know, they throw chlorine gas at each other and people smother to death instead of a world where people are so terrified they may not blow each other up. This, remember, is the guy who has virtually ensured that the nuts in Iran are going to go, go, going to go nuclear, and he's talking about this meaningless, empty stuff. And just to, just to remind you again, look, listen to David Brooks from Knucklehead Row on the New York Times, a former newspaper, you know, just blithering with how beautiful the speech is. Listen to this. First, I thought it was a beautiful speech. Uh, It was realistic about human nature and our tendency to get into fights. And one of the nice little moments in there was when he tied the fighting of hunter-gatherers, the fighting of children on the playground to Mm -hmm. nuclear explosion. It's just the same sorts of territoriality, tribalism, but with bigger tools. And so that was a nice tool, and I think characteristically Obama. I I mean, I'm sorry, but like this empty, this empty, like... So I use the word sophomore. That's what it's like. It's like a kid in a dorm smoking dope, you know, going like, isn't it weird, man? You know, like the hunter-gatherers, you know, they used to hit each other with clubs, and now we have nuclear weapons. It's like it's the same thing. You know, it's the same thing. So it's like no historical reference, no idea of the kind of terrible, terrible, heroic decision-making that Harry Truman had to go through to decide whether to save the hundreds of thousands of American lives, at least 100,000 American lives, that he saved by dropping that bomb. And, you know, it's, I don't mean to make light of it, it's a terrible thing. Children, women vaporized, you know, it's, it's a nightmare. 
But he made this horrible, heroic decision, and this guy has reduced it. You know, we started out with Obama with this empty slogan, hope and change. The fact that people voted for that appalled me when it happened. I thought, really? Hope and change? That's that's what, you know, like, that's that's like, you know, bread and circuses. I mean, it's like happiness and jolly, you know, it's, it's this empty slogan, and we've ended up with these empty slogans again. So, so what we're seeing with Obama, right, when you see... David Brooks, the New York Times, right? And this is a guy who can't understand why people like Hillary Clinton. We were talking about this last week. It's, it occurred to me that, like, if you support Hillary Clinton, that's one thing. I think you're wrong. If you can't understand why people don't like Hillary Clinton, you have no business writing for a major metropolitan newspaper. I mean, any reporter who's been covering the news for the last 20 minutes knows why people might dislike Hillary Clinton. If you really can't understand that, you're not a journalist. You're not, you know, you have no business having an opinion. You know, just turn it off. So, so what we have is empty slogans and empty press. What a beautiful speech. What a beautiful speech. You know, celebrating the, oh, it's so historic. Celebrating this nonsense. This is a failed presidency. We're watching a failed presidency. And not only are we watching a failed presidency, we're watching the end of two really failed presidencies, the George W. Bush presidency and this presidency, of two men from the next generation after the baby boomers. These are the younger people who were coming in. You know, in theory, we should never have seen old people again running for office. Then the torch had passed to a new generation, and we were going to see these people. It has been such a disaster. It's been such a disaster that we now have these two decrepit old people with old ideas. One of them, Hillary Clinton, has old nonsense ideas. She's just she's just the kind of late show version of Bernie Sanders. It's like, I'll take us to Venezuela you know, by a longer road so it won't be such a shock when our country falls apart. And then you've got Trump. Trump gives a speech to the motorcycle guys, Thunder Alley. What's it called? The Thunder Rally, I guess. And, and, and let me just play just a little bit of this speech here. It's going to be America first, not all these other countries that don't even like us. It's going to be, it's going to be America first. We're going to be the smart country again. We're not going to be the dummies that the world takes advantage of. Even in our military, you've been seeing me. We defend so many countries. We defend Japan. We defend Germany. We defend Saudi Arabia. We defend South Korea. When the maniac in North Korea raises his head, we send our ships, our planes, we're all ready to go. But we're not properly taken care of, folks. And this isn't 40 years ago where we can do it. We're the highest tax nation in the world. By the way, my tax plan, we bring it down so much, especially for business and for the middle-income people. We bring the numbers down so low, lower than any other candidate running, even the ones that have already been vanquished. We have the lowest tax. We have a great plan. <laughs> so I, I have no idea what he just said, but I think it's that we're angry and uh, I don't like those people. So you've got Obama. We, we've got skyrocketing debt. We've got the Middle East just consumed with violence. We have zero growth in the economy, something like 0.5 percent growth in the economy. Our racial tensions. Are, and he's sitting around talking about the hunter gatherers with their atomic bomb. He's, he's talking like 2001 stuff. This like crazy, you know, rambling emptiness. So this is a failed presidency and a failed vision. It's a failed vision. And this is on the right. This is a failed vision on the right because who knows, you know, isolationism really in this world? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I mean, these guys can these guys can send us a bomb by email. There is no isolationism. You know, we're all in the same very, very tiny world trying to kill each other. You know, you have to have some kind of plan other than it's a great plan. It's the best plan. I have the best people and it's going to be America first and rah, rah, rah. So 
so we on the right have failed. I mean, we on the right have failed. The, the conservatives, as I keep saying, have lost the election. And when you lose something, the smart thing to do is not shake your fist and do a Bill Crystal. oh, we're going to have an impressive third-party candidate. The thing to do is to take stock, take stock of what's gone wrong. So I've noticed something interesting, and this is, I will, this does connect. It, it seems like I'm going down a tangent, but I, it does connect. I've noticed that suddenly in the mainstream media, there's a strange new concern with political correctness. You know, Newsweek has a big story. I think it's their cover story. The battle against hate speech on college campuses gives rise to a generation that hates speech. Okay, this is Nina Burley in, the, in Newsweek. During his 18 years as president of Lebanon Valley College during the middle of the past century, Clyde Lynch led the tiny Pennsylvania liberal arts institution through the tribulations of the Great Depression and World War II. In gratitude, college trustees named a new building after him. Neither Lynch nor those trustees could have predicted there would come a day when students would demand that his name be stripped from the Lynch Memorial Hall because the word Lynch has racial overtones. But that day did come. When playwright Eve Ensler wrote the Vagina Monologues, which premiered in 1996 and has been performed thousands of times by actors, celebrities, and college students, she probably did not foresee a day when a performance of her feminist agitprop would be canceled because it was offensive to women <laughs> without vaginas. And yet that day did come at Mount Holyoke, one of the nation's premier women's colleges. Graduates of the class of 2016, this is Newsweek, graduates of the class of 2016 are leaving behind campuses that have become petri dishes of extreme political correctness and heading out into a world without trigger warnings, safe spaces, and free speech zones with no rules forbidding offensive verbal conduct or microaggressions and where the names of cruel, rapacious capitalists are embossed in brass and granite on buildings across the land. Baby seals during the Canadian hunting season may have a better chance of survival than these kids, okay? So suddenly on the, you know, Newsweek, a reliable kind of mainstream media mainstay, suddenly they're concerned. And I've seen these articles again and again, and not just in the Wall Street Journal, but in the, in the New York Times. Here's Nicholas Kristof in the New York Times. A while back, a couple weeks ago, he wrote something called The Confession of Liberal Intolerance. All right, Nick Kristof is one of the knucklehead row. He's right. He's a reliable leftist, has a little bit of a conscience. And every now and again, you get the feeling that Nick Kristof, like those guys in the Chrysalis in the Matrix, you know, they'd wake up and suddenly realize that they're living in a fantasy world and this is not the real world. Every now and again, you get the feeling that Nick Kristof pulls a Matrix and looks around and goes, wait, this is the New York Times. It's not reality, you know? And so he suddenly, he suddenly realized that liberals are not liberal, that liberals are intolerant. He wrote a piece that went, we progressives believe in diversity and we want women, blacks, Latinos, gays, and Muslims at the table, er, so long as they aren't conservatives. Universities are the bedrock of progressive values, but the one kind of diversity that universities disregard is ideological and religious. We're fine with people who don't look like us as long as they think like us, okay? So he writes this piece and it, about... A week ago, he writes a follow-up piece. And here's the follow-up piece. It's rare for a column to inspire widespread agreed agreement, but that one led to a consensus. Almost every liberal agreed that I was dead wrong. And then here's a, here's a reader's comment. You don't diversify with idiots, asserted the reader comment on the Times website that was most recommended by readers. Here's another comment. Conservatives are narrow-minded, 
and are sure they have the right answers. Finally, this one was recommend this comment was recommended by readers. I am grossly disappointed in you for this essay, Mr. Christoph. You have spent so much time in troubled places seemingly calling out misogyny and bigotry, and yet here you are, scolding and shaming progressives. Ooh, you don't want to shame progressives because they're already so ashamed. Scolding and shaming progressives for not mindlessly accepting patriarchy, misogyny, complementarianism, and hateful, hateful bigotry against the LGBTQ community into the academy, unquote. Then Christoph goes on and starts to dither. You know, he doesn't quite back down. He doesn't back down, but he starts to say, well, we don't want hate, and, you know, we don't want this, and we don't want that. And he says, there are no quick solutions to the ideological homogeneity on campuses. Let me just pause there. Yes, there are. Hire conservatives. Hire conservative campuses. Let conservative speech. You know, don't chase Ben Shapiro out every time he comes to give a speech. Try not to have a riot when he comes to give a speech. That would be a start. You know, that's a quick solution right there. But according to Christoph, he's being sensitive to his audience. There are no quick solutions to the ideological homogeneity on campuses. But shouldn't we at least acknowledge that this is a shortcoming rather than celebrate our sameness? Can't we be a bit more self-aware when we dismiss conservatives as so cocky and narrow-minded that they should be excluded from large swaths of higher education? And he, this is his conclusion. Cocky, narrow-minded, I suggest that we look in the mirror. So he does, you know, hold his position. Bill Maher had Melissa Harris-Perry on, right? Now, Melissa Harris-Perry, you will remember, is the woman who thinks the government should raise our children, who went on a tear about how she was being persecuted for being black, went on this crate. I mean, she's kind of a nut. So, of course, she's a nut. She loses her job at MSNBC. She's teaching at a college. And Maher asks her if she sees a lot of political correctness. Listen to Maher's response to her response. This is really classic. Do you find there is a culture of political correctness on college campuses that is stifling debate and learning? Hmm. I don't, but I do, I do think students wow. are... Um, There's no atmosphere of political correctness on campus? I don't find that, no. Whoa. Where do you teach? I teach at Wake Forest University. Wow. Um, but I do think the students are struggling with this. And I, and I, and I feel like... Because um, lots of comedians won't even play colleges anymore because nothing's funny. Oh, that has not been that's not been in my experience. I mean, I was telling Wayne that I've got these 22 students and we went to Iowa, New Hampshire, both South Carolina primaries, the North Carolina primary. They're Democrats and Republicans. And I would assign them to work for candidates, even if they didn't, um, if they're not from that party. Um, And they threw themselves into it. So I had, you know, Republicans working for Bernie and, you know, Democrats working for Rubio and they they were very much into it, but they are struggling with it, and we don't have good language for talking to each other across difference. Um, and I don't know that we're doing a good job in this country giving our young people good tools for having conversations across difference. But I think that's our fault, not theirs. <laughs> As always, nothing's their fault. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great, a great ad lib from Bill Maher. Nothing's their fault, you know. All right, so. Everybody's scoring Donald Trump because he wants to build a wall to keep out the Mexicans, right? And in America first and isolationism, we're going to stop, you know, defending all these countries. We're going to stop being taken advantage of by all these countries. And he's building a wall. And even the Pope is saying, don't build a wall, build bridges. But these guys have built a wall. I mean, this is a wall. They've built a wall around their college campuses. They've built a wall around their newsrooms. They've built a wall around the entertainment industry. Believe me, they have built a wall around the entertainment industry. They have built a wall keeping out people 
who disagree. Okay, that's a, that's the same thing. They they're you're welcome there. It's just what Christoph says. You're welcome there if you're black. You're welcome if you're Muslim. As long as you don't disagree with them, then you're done. Then they have built a wall. It's as high as any wall Donald Trump could build. It's as thick. It's as hard to get through in, in all the places where the left dominates. Okay, now let's. So that's that's the failure. That is the failure of Obama and the left and this vision, which is now just a bunch of empty phrases. Okay, but on the right. You know, I've, I have a lot of respect for Ann Coulter. She's a friend, and I also respect, of all the people who supported Trump, she is the one person who supported Trump for honest, open reasons, racism. Ann believes that if people come into the country who are from different cultures, they will destroy the country by virtue of the cultures that they come from. Here she is. This is about a year ago. She's talking to that guy, Jorge Ramos, from Mexican TV, whatever it's called. And here, here she's being very open and honest about it. We were bringing in cultures where child rape is the norm, where honor that killings are the norm. That is, you, where, you cannot um, say that the majority no of immigrants. The concept of litter, our national parks are being overrun. If you don't want to be crime. killed by ISIS, don't go to Syria. If you don't want to be killed by a Mexican, there's nothing I can tell you. There are cultures that are obviously deficient, and if they weren't deficient, you wouldn't be sitting in America interviewing me. I'd be sitting in Mexico. When you bring the people here, you bring those cultures here. That includes honor killings. It includes uncles raping their nieces. It includes dumping Look, litter all I, over. I, I read it the whole book. It includes not paying your taxes. It includes paying bribes to government officials. That isn't our culture. Now, now, here's the reason I respect Anne, even though I disagree with her, okay? I disagree with her entirely, but here's the reason I respect her. If on the one side you are allowed to say, if on the left you are allowed to say that it is somehow a positive good to have people of different colors as long as they all agree, it's simply the color of their face, the culture that they come from that makes it good that they are there, then it seems perfectly rational to argue that it could be bad that they're there. You know, if something can be good, it could be bad. If you accept the logic of racism, which the left has sold and sold and sold, if you accept the logic of racism, then it is perfectly valid for Anne to make the argument that, no, it's a bad thing to let them in. You know, you say it's good, I say it's bad. Why not? Let's have that argument. My point of view is obviously that the entire argument is out of its mind, and the walls that we are trying to build will not get built, and they won't succeed. They're not going to succeed in terms of ideas because you end up with an empty suit like Barack Obama standing and talking inanities where people made history and made difficult decisions. You just have this empty slogans, empty, you know, uh, uh, phrases that he spews out. That's what you're going to get on the left if you don't let in conflicting ideas. On the right, listen, this fight is over. This world is too tiny to keep people out. We have to be selling people values. It's about the values. It's always about the values. You know, they can come in from cultures where they accept bribes. We have to teach them no bribes. We don't do that. It would help not to elect Hillary Clinton, who takes bribes, but all the same, but all the same you know, we have to elect people who are decent and, and show that culture. We have to stand up for our culture, and that's what we haven't been doing, and that's the failure. These walls on both sides are going to fail. They're going to fail on both sides. It's going to become a global world. There's nothing we can do about it. I'm not saying it's pleasant. I'm just saying that's the way it's going to be. We're going to have to make sure our values triumph. <clears throat> and and if you have isolationism of ideas, which is what they have on the left, you end up with empty suits saying empty phrases while the world goes to hell. Stuff I like. 
Stuff I like. I want to talk about the stuff that I like more than anything else, which is my marriage. Today is my anniversary. I have been married for 36 years. I have been with Ellen for 40 years. And if you buy my book, I'll use this. Uh, I can use my wedding, my marriage as a way to sell my book. If you buy The Great Good Thing, it is virtually a love letter. It's not just a story of my conversion to Christianity. It's also a love letter to my wife. And you will see why. Let me tell you one story that's in this book. And I will. this is a true story. Back in the 70s, Ellen and I lived in New York. And it was a hellhole. It was a hellhole. You really could not go out to buy a pack of gum at night without risking your life. I mean, it was terrible. There were FALN bombings. She was. She had a job. She was coming home from, uh, you know, bomb threats. There, her office would be get closed. I. The son of Sam was killing people. That was the some famous summer of Sam. I was covering that as a freelance reporter. I was writing stories about it, interviewing his victims. It was freezing in the winter. It was horribly uh, uh, hot in the summer. That summer. On my birthday, July 13th, on my birthday, we had saved, we were so poor, we were, <laughs> we had nothing, we had nothing. And so we scraped together enough money to take me out for dinner on my birthday. While we're sitting at dinner, there's a blackout, the lights go out, it's a famous blackout of New York. And of course, uptown, not, you know, only a few streets away, the city went up in flames. People started rioting. I mean, the city was a disaster. In the New York Daily, I believe it was the Daily News, there was a political cartoon of Manhattan sinking into the harbor, upended, sinking into the harbor with businessmen on their briefcases paddling for shore trying to get out of the So the lights go out. It's my birthday. The city goes up in smoke. We're sitting in this very nice restaurant. And they said, listen, you know, we don't want to inconvenience you. The wine is free. So, of course, we had no money. We just got plastered. I mean, we, got, we were just drinking wine. Finally, the two of us went waltzing home across, across the city. As the city burned around us, we just went dancing home. I was singing to her. Yeah, I was singing and we were dancing. And I think back on that because it's a, a reminder that even when the political situation is as bad as it can possibly be, you can always get, get drunk. No, that's, <laughs> that's not it. You, know, you can always you can always find love and joy. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, remember, that city, anyone who looked at that city would have said it was over, would have said it was Detroit. Within 20 years, it was the greatest city on earth. I mean, it was clean, it was beautiful, it was crime-free. That was Giuliani, partly Reagan. They just changed the entire culture of the country and of the city, and it turned around, so there is always hope. Here is the song that I was singing to my wife as I danced her home through the burning city. The odds were a hundred to one against me. The world thought the heights were too high to climb. Oh, I wasn't a bit concerned, for from history I had learned how many, many times the world had turned. They all laughed at Christopher Columbus when he said the world was round. They all laughed when Edison recorded sound. They all laughed at Wilbur and his brother when they said that man could fly. They told Marconi, wireless was a phony, it's the same old pie. They laughed at me, wanting you, said I was reaching for the moon. But oh, you came through, now they'll have to change their tune. They all said we never would be happy, darling, let's take a bow. But ho, 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 who's got the last laugh now? 
It has been, uh, my marriage has been a, a miraculous marriage. It is not like other people's marriages. It really isn't. You can read all about it, but I will just tell you that right off the bat. It has been stuff I like to the max. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. We have a short week. Subscribe, send in your questions. We will do the mailbag tomorrow. I'll see you then. Thank <laughs> you.